What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. This is James, and we're going to finally cover Kill Bill Volume 1 and Kill Bill Volume 2, which are essentially one big movie. Yeah, they Tarantino wrote it as one movie. I think it was around 400 pages, maybe a little longer. Well, he put it in, like, novel form yeah. first. Well, he always writes that. He doesn't yeah. write screenplay format. He writes in prose, like a novel, mm -hmm. and then he'll have, like, scene headings and stuff, but it's no one else writes like he doesn't. He's the only person that can get away with it. If you if you show, like, an agent or a producer, like, a script like that, they would laugh at you and throw it out the, out the window yeah. if it doesn't look proper. That's probably how he comes up with such great characters and dialogue. Like, he just writes so much about each person, each that he puts inside of his scripts. Yeah, that's why I'm looking forward to reading his novels he eventually writes. But he wrote this as as one as one movie, and he filmed it. He was wanted to film it so it was like a long, like Shogun Assassin. It's like a four hour movie. He wanted Kill Bill to be that, but as they were making it, he was beginning to realize I'm gonna have to cut stuff out because the studio will never let me release this gigantic movie. Because as we've said before. If movies are too long, then that means less screenings in the theater, which means less tickets can be bought each day for that film, which ultimately means it will make less money. And so movies have to be under three hours. This around. is a business, everybody. Yeah. It's yeah. a business. You can't go three and a half hours, four hours. Studios are in the business of making money. Yeah, so then he figured out a way to, if I make this into two films, I can keep everything that I wrote and shot in both movies, which he did. Yeah, and these are both remarkable films because it's just such a genre blend. I mean, we have like... The first time he really tackled action on a large scale, we have this the, like, the blend of the samurai genre with the western gunslingers genre, then the exploitation film genre too, so it's just like a bunch of stuff going on, kung fu, and it's just like Tarantino seemed like he just had so much fun making this movie, and it's like a love letter to film. And it's something that only he could ever, like, no one else does the things that he does, like, like for example, the Oren Ishii fight, it's this epic samurai battle that takes place while Spanish acoustic guitar is playing. Like, who would think to do that? But it, when you watch it happen and you hear that music playing, it's, it's just like, a, it's unbelievable. It's like lightning striking. You've never seen or heard anything like that. And he has this way of blending together his things that he's a fan of. That's the, like, what his work amounts to. Like, he puts the movies and pop culture references and music that he loves into this films in, like, this hosh posh of uh, a boiling pot of all sorts of things. And... Uh, people have tried to do what he does, but time and time again, you realize there's only one Tarantino. Yeah, this is like a new type of movie, too, and I don't think it's ever even been come close to replicated. He probably hasn't even come close to replicating himself. It's like we've never seen anything like this. An American female samurai western revenge epic. Never before done, never will be done again. Outside of the world of Tarantino, it does not exist. And Tarantino's directing, it's so fun and creative in this movie and you could probably say that this is the movie where he stepped out of the realm of being an indie filmmaker you know so like reservoir dogs pulp fiction jackie brown these are very low budget films indie filmmaker technically and then kill bill larger budget but like a huge commercial success as well this yeah i, I believe this was his most successful i think it made 180 million which is really good for a rated r film that it's back then Nowadays, yeah, 180 on the first one. Okay, yeah, and then the next one made a little bit less, but still made a ton. And now well, I got it right here, 154, 154. Yeah, so over 300 total. Yeah, on a budget of 30 million on the second one, and 30 million, so 60 million total budget. And then keep in mind, this is DVD era. Mm -hmm. People, everyone bought this. Oh, DVD. this in the posters and merchandising yeah. from this. So everyone bought these DVDs. But in terms of Tarantino's directing, like you said, he got fun and creative. I think that he was still he was beginning to discover. His real voice, because if you look at his first three films, uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, his it's 
his directing is still very reserved. Not the writing. The writing's still crazy. His typical wild, surprising violence, like all that's still in it. But in terms of his directing, it's still very reserved and controlled and um, very traditional in a lot of ways. Um, and he didn't really do anything too expressive. But with this film, you get the the crazy zooms, the zoom ins or the zoom outs, and you get like the sixty millimeter and the funky angles, and then you get the cool sound effects like the bowling pins when she, he knocks when she knocks Go Go on the table. You hear the bowling pins, and, and even like the sirens of yeah, like the close yeah, up whenever yeah, Bill's mentioned, wee, yeah, wee, yeah, like all that stuff. Like these fun yeah. idiosyncrasies that you never see in film usually. It's like almost like a TV show. Yeah, but I think with this movie, he realized I love this stuff, and now it's become normal for a Tarantino movie. He used like think of all the zooms you see in Django or in. Glorious Bastards or Hateful Eight. I don't think he did any for uh, Once Upon a Time. I'm pretty sure he went back to reserve. He, did, he was very subtle. I think the one thing I, I picked up on was when Cliff was like walking at that movie ranch, his shoes with his keys kind of sounds like the, uh, what is it, the girdles on a on a horseback, yeah, yeah, yeah. on like yeah. cowboy boots, whatever yeah. the, the, the spinning thing is. Yeah, but otherwise I'm talking about like the camera work. He didn't do any crazy zooms with that. I don't think he wanted to with that movie. Mm -hmm. I think he went with a different style, but his signature style was developed in Kill Bill. Yeah, and it's just so fun to watch, and this is a female-led cast, which is so phenomenal. A ton of female actresses, aside from like Buck, um, and then also... But Oh yeah, Buck. Buck. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Buck, and the, I meant to say Buck. <laughs> I know what I'm saying. Okay, I mean I've seen the movie before, and then obviously David Carradine as Bill, but we never see his face until the second film, and then Earl and Adorianzo and his assistant. Everyone else is a female leading character. You know, we have Uma Thurman as Beatrix Kittle, the bride. Vivica A. Fox as Vernita Green. Lucy Liu as Oren Ishii. Daryl Hannah as L. Driver. Julie Dreyfus as Sophia Fatale. And Shiaki Kiruama as Gogo Yabari. And that's just the first film. Yeah, and the, the Deadly Viper Squad, the woman, they were, I think he wrote the first idea, obviously, in Pulp Fiction when um, Mia Wallace tells the story about the, the pilot she shot about the Fox Force 5. And each one of those Fox Force 5 members are uh, fleshed out in this film where all of the women are, you could say, are part of the Fox Force 5 concept. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think Kill Bill is such an important film for him to do because he did Reservoir Dogs, his first debut, and that is one of the best debuts in the history of cinema. What about his second debut? <laughs> his second <laughs> debut oh, yeah, from last episode. His second debut was Pulp Fiction, which obviously is his masterpiece. And then Jackie Brown was his third film, which a lot of people, I think, still don't understand why he did. Or at the time, they're like, why did he make Jackie Brown? They maybe didn't understand the movie at the time, or they were just surprised that he went from Pulp Fiction to Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is a very underrated movie. That movie is fantastic. Yeah. And then... I think what Kill Bill did is it kind of reignited the world's attention onto Tarantino and made and like for him it was like I can do anything I want now. I can do I can do action like nobody's done action. I mean the crazy 88 fight is one, probably the most insane action scene I've ever seen in my life. It's definitely up there for top action sequences. How can it not? Yeah, and the thing with Jackie Brown is that's an adaptation of mm -hmm. an Elmore Leonard novel and the reason why he did that ultimately I think that what I've read, I'm trying to remember exactly, but he, he said something along, along the lines of he wanted to do something for him and something yeah, that just, he loved. He wanted and, to do something for himself. And Elmore Leonard, he is, his, I believe, his favorite author because Leonard, he kind of invented that kind of mumblecore, like realistic dialogue for his characters to use where they're referencing things or the dialogue in the books often sounds very conversational. 
And so that's where Tarantino got most of that inspiration for how, how he wrote dialogue. So I think just being such a massive fan of Elmore Leonard, he wanted to adapt that novel for and Jackie Brown. Tarantino's like a punk rocker of directing. He does what he wants to do. He uses, he makes all of his own, writes all of his own scripts except for adapting the Jackie Brown novel. Same thing with Tarantino. They do all their own stuff. They do whatever they want. Yeah. And that's the that's a different kind of director. You have directors like David Fincher who they don't write the screenplays, but they are involved in the screenwriting in process. The story. And they help the writers edit and like he even like helped he went to Aaron Sorkin and they had meetings about rewriting social network, but he doesn't actually write scripts and same thing you could say about Scorsese. He wrote um, Mean Streets and he wrote Silence. Good Fellas too. Um, yeah. Good and, Fellas. Yeah. Good like, Fellas. No, he, like, no, he didn't write it. I thought he wrote it. No. There's a different Are you writer. Sure? Yeah. Okay. You can look it up while I talk. Okay. But that doesn't mean that that's this means there's a different kind of director. Like Chris Nolan writes and directs. Paul Thomas Anderson always writes and directs, and Tarantino always writes and directs their own movies. And there's just a different a different niche for that kind of filmmaker where their story that they're directing is wholeheartedly their own thing that they created within themselves. Whether if unless it's an adaptation like Jackie Brown or like the Batman movies, but otherwise there's something really special about having a filmmaker direct a movie that they wrote. I think I love it. No, I agree. Absolutely. Now, before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to share us with your family and friends who love movies as well. And become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Patrons get perks like personalized videos, podcast schedules for upcoming episodes, and top tier patrons. They get a monthly shout out on the podcast that we do at the beginning of every month. And the best perk of all is every patron has access to weekly bonus episodes of the show that only patrons can see. It doesn't matter if you're in the $2, $5, or $10 tier. You can all check out these new episodes. We do them every Tuesday. Head on over to our website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com, to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, and our movie posters. Follow, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave those five-star reviews. They're super helpful, and we love reading them. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit that notification bell, subscribe, and leave a comment and a like. And just like all other Tarantino movies, it opens so strong, and you have The Bride... Uh, looking up at us from the camp, from the floor, blood covered, and we see someone's talking off screen, and he wipes the handkerchief. And we end up seeing it's Bill from the Bill and the Handkerchief, and it's a very strong opening. And I, for all of his title credit sequences, I think this might be my favorite, where it's the shot that Robert Richardson got of it's a profile of Uma Thurman, um, who's comatose on the floor, and it's a really beautiful shot, and that's where the title credits roll. And I think it's probably my favorite out of all Tarantino movies. And apparently, so Uma Thurman and Tarantino created the character of the bride together. But the all the whole thing started from her coming up with the concept of the movie opens with the bride bloodied on the floor. Which is, I think that's influenced by those exploitation films from like the 60s and 70s. That was like kind of like how a lot of those opened up, especially the revenge flicks. Mm. So like opening up with like our, our protagonist like bloodied to a pulp, they've been wronged, and now they need to go seek their revenge on the world and their, and their enemies. Exactly. And then the music in this is, I can't remember what it's called, but it definitely has the tone of the latter half of Tarantino's career where he's playing with the different cultures of music and different genres of music, whereas obviously the soundtracks for the other films are so fun and they work perfectly and we love the music for those. But with these, with this film, he starts right off the bang with something completely different in terms of the music. Yeah, and like, so we have like tracks like ba My Baby Shot Me Down by... Uh, that's what it is. Nancy, yeah, Sinatra. Nancy Sinatra. Bang, yeah. bang. Yeah. So like that's uh, that Frank Sinatra's Star. So that's a yeah. classic song that we all associate with Kill Bill. And then RZA, he was in charge of actually... A, like 
planning the music out for the film and getting all like the, the curator, the curator of yeah. the music. And he also did produce some of his own tracks, original tracks for the film. RZA from um, the Wu Tang Clan. Yeah. Cash rules everything around me. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> He's a cool guy. And then what's so cool about the music? Oh, I'm sorry the- about RZA. Remember that movie he directed that we Man saw? Man with the Iron Fist? Yeah, that we watched that. yeah, we watched that in Vegas, and we were like, oh my god, this wasn't very good yeah. with Russell Crowe. Yeah, it was a shot for sure. Anyways, yeah. but like in like Green Horn music in here, but what what he also did with the music in him and Tarantino is just like little bits and pieces of songs just scattered throughout the film, just fragments of it, which just makes it so more interesting. And also with these movies that Scorsese does a lot um, where a song will start playing, and then when it cuts to a different shot or a different scene, the music stops jarringly, and that really kind of like wakes the audience up and ki- helps us stay engaged in the moment. Mm-hmm. It's just same thing as visually cutting from something dark to something light, or cutting from something quiet to something loud. It's mm-hmm. a great uh, editing effect. And there's two people behind the scenes of this film that I think were so integral to it. And the first one is Quentin Tarantino's former editor Sally Mankey, and she, I think she did a phenomenal job in this movie. And it, it, this movie might have been her best work in general out of all of Tarantino's films. Yeah, I remember I, was, I started it, the second one what when you, you were in, you were like brushing your teeth or something, and I was like, "This is really well edited." Yeah, <laughs> she was great, but you know, she passed away yeah. I think in 2010. And then um, she did *Inglorious Bastards*. That was the last one. Yeah, and also Zoe Bell. Obviously, we've talked about her. She is Uma Thurman's stunt woman. And she basically Uma does pretty much all the knife and sword work that you see. But whenever uh, Beatrix is like running up the staircase, the the hand railing or the doing flips, flips and, yeah. and running upside and just jumping upside down, all that that's Zoe Bell. And Zoe Bell, she performed the stunt where she cut the baseball in half, and that was real. Yeah, that was real. That's Tori Hanzo. Yeah, that wasn't fake or anything. Like she really hacked the baseball in half in in real time. And it looks like it's captured in camera. You're like, yeah. did they do that for real? But if you look closely, you can tell Uma Thurman is a little taller and a little lankier than Zoe Bell. So if you look closely, you can tell kind of here and there when Zoe Bell's in the shop. Yeah, if you're looking for it. But I was looking for it when we watched it recently, and it's very few. Like, Uma Thurman does most of the action in this movie, and it's so impressive because she, especially because she came off a pregnancy. She had just given birth, and I think she filmed this Four months after, I four, think. Yeah, four or six months after. She went right into training. Yeah, and it's it, and unbelievable how much action she performed in this movie. Like, she really set the stage. Like, like we've said, there are female action stars before this, you know, like, there's Lyndall Hamilton and T2 and then Sigourney Weaver and Aliens. But in terms of, like, fighting and action sequences, like, we had never seen uh, a female actress, uh, an actress perform lengthy action fight scenes like this before. I mean, you could just cut the female, like, one of the most capable fictional characters in film history yeah i mean beatrix kiddo is such a badass she's one of my favorite and like we were obsessed with kill bill when we were like teenagers oh, yeah. when these came out we, we, were, watched, we were way too young to we watch watched them all the time and beatrix kiddo is such a fascinating character the bride uh beatrix and um uh, uh black mamba she's got so many fun nicknames i should have been black mamba <laughs> but um the thing with beatrix is she goes from being the most deadly woman on the planet to then being a mother who's terrified for her baby tries to escape the game, the assassination game, obviously gets shot in the head, and then she's on this path of revenge. And you can argue that very few characters you can think of have gone through more pain and trauma than Beatrix Kiddo. And the obstacles are constantly stacked against her, and they all seem almost impossible to overcome, but somehow she does it. Yeah, that's what the writing is so great about this film, because the goal seems impossible and insurmountable. And... Like Bill says, he's like, how many, like, he, he's like, did all the people you killed to get to me, was it worth it? And what I love about the the character is that 
she's not ashamed of what she does and doesn't he ask if it felt good if, yeah she yeah she asks if it felt good and she's like yeah it felt good and i love that about the character because it's not like she's feels bad about what she's doing and feels guilty like she's on this path of vengeance and we've seen this play out so many times with men in the leading roles and that's why this movie was so refreshing because the revenge saga hadn't had in mainstream movies hadn't had uh, a female lead in that story for since I could remember. Not that there weren't revenge stories of these types of characters, I'm, but like I'm on this scale, main, mainstream. The, yeah, but yeah. on this scale yeah. of like killing hundreds of people in yeah. two movies. And a lot of people like he got so much flack for the violence and saying that like I, I, there's that great interview where Tarantino is being interviewed by the, uh, a journalist uh, is on. I can't remember what station it was, and she was kind of like grilling him about why why do you make your movie so violent? Is this bad for young girls to see? And Tarantino's like, if you don't like violent movies, don't go see them. And also, I think that this is kind of empowering for young girls to see that, like, I could, watching this woman kick ass is actually kind of a fun thing to see. Yeah. And if, if that's what you like. Everyone has their opinions on yeah. this film. And, you know, violence in film, we've talked about it a few times. It's it's not real. You know, it's not real. And I don't think video games or movies are, are making people do crazy wild things. And I don't think it rots our brains to the extent that people think. And it's a Tarantino movie. There's going to be some freaking violence. If you don't want to watch a violent movie, don't watch a violent movie. Yeah, and, and a lot of people, including us, we it's entertaining to us. We it, I think it's a lot of fun watching um, watching Beatrix Kittle beat the hell out of all these people and getting these samurai sword fights. It's, it's wild. It's, it's epic. Such, it's so much fun. I love it. And the you as much as Tarantino obviously created this whole world, there is no Kill Bill without Uma Thurman. She is the... Um, she's the the heart of the franchise and she's the face of it and it's her story and this could not work with another actor i don't think yeah and she was heavily involved in the writing process early on with quentin tarantino like before he even finished the script he was like staying with her at her house in the in the country and then he'd like write with her and then they'd re they'd read the what he'd written that day out loud and they'd just Ethan Hawks playing guitar yeah. in the background <laughs> <laughs> so this, they'd spend a lot of time working on just the dialogue and the character of beatrix kittle so much so she is as much the bride as the bride is, is Uma Thurman. And you could tell she has that same charm and charisma as Mia Wallace, for sure. You know what I mean? She has that same kind of energy. She's often having fun at times. You know what I mean? Have you picked up on the, the Mia Wallace reference in the movie? No, what is Where it? when she's talking to Vernita Green in the in the kitchen after they get in the knife fight and she's fixing her daughter's cereal. And then um, Uma Thurman makes oh, a the square with her fingers. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's just square. like Mia yeah. Wallace in the convertible. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Be, a Don't be a square. Yeah, yeah I, I saw that last time, yeah. And the cool thing about Kill Bill, it's, it's probably the most like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction in terms of it being put together so out of order. Mm -hmm. So Inglorious Bastards is... I wouldn't say it's out of order, really. And then the rest, in one spot of time in Hollywood isn't, Django isn't, um, hatefully it isn't. But like this one is like in that realm of like I'm gonna mess with your head time wise, and we're gonna we're gonna show you fighting and killing Vernita Green, and then we get in the car, and Oren Ishii's name has already been crossed off. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm not, we haven't even seen that yet, but you know that she's been through that. Uh, the reason why Tarantino does this, and it, it's it's a writing technique, honestly, and it it's, it works to great effect because. So say he wrote it in chronological order, then you start with um, the training sequence where Bill drops uh, Beatrix off at, at Pie Maze. Yeah, and that's where, that's where it would start. And you have 30 minutes of training, basically, and then uh, then there's the wedding. So starting it off where Beatrix is fully formed, and then you have this opening sequence where 
This woman knocks on another woman's door, and they start this vicious knife fight, destroying the living room. It's so shocking, and you don't. It's like you don't even need to know the backstory of this character or Vanita Green. You just know they're both highly trained, efficient, efficient killers, and for some reason they both want to kill each other. And that intrigue and mystery, as well as combining the shock of what's happening, is what really is sets up the stage as a great opening for the movie. And so it's it's such a great writing technique to not start from. We don't need to see the origin right away. In um. Nolan did something similar with Batman Begins for sure. Yeah. He wasn't fully formed Batman in the first act, but you bounce around between Bruce Wayne's ages in different contexts throughout that first act until he is fully formed as Batman. Yeah, we see Bruce as a child first yeah. rather than Uma's fully formed as the bride. Exactly, yeah. So I think it's it's such a strong way to start the movie. But you can only, it's very hard to do and it has to be done the right way. Like Tarantino's probably one of the only people that can pull it off because he does it with Reservoir Dogs, does it with Pulp Fiction, does it with Kill Bill and Kill Bill. Well, not really Kill Bill 2, but, so, but Kill Bill he pulls it off. She pulls but it Kill off. Bill 2 has that great... Um, kind of Kill Bill 2. Yeah, but that uh, breaking the fourth wall... Yeah, Super so you fun. could say that Kill Bill 2 is similar, just not as like large an extent, because it opens with her in the convertible talking POV to us, how she's like, I'm on my way, I got one more name on the list, and then we show uh, flashing back to before that moment. Exactly. And I love the title of the movie, because it tells us everything we need to know. Kill we Bill. gotta kill Bill. Kill Bill, let's go. <laughs> we know it's gonna happen. You wanna... Let's, let's get into... The first one? The Deadly Viper Squad? Deadly Viper Squad. Let's yeah, so let, let's start off with, we have... And it's the first person we see that she fights is Vernita Green and so this was played by Vivica A. Fox and her nickname is Copperhead and according to Beatrix Kiddo she was the deadliest woman or the best woman she'd ever seen with a blade and this is such a great scene because we don't know what's going to happen and it's just like this nice rural, this little suburban neighborhood and they get this crazy knife fight in the middle of a living room and destroy everything and then her daughter come, Nikki, Nikki comes home from school and this, this scene is so well edited I love the way Tarantino directs action because he keeps his camera steady and static, and it doesn't shake. It doesn't get crazy. It's all really precise and well edited by Sally to craft the sequence. And I really adore. And he shoots like a lot of wides, and there it doesn't seem like you can't tell when they're stunt actors. So he does a great job of filming this this fight sequence that you don't normally see. And what's so fun is we're so in the dark about so many different things about what's happening. Like for example, the pussy wagon truck. Like what is the <laughs> pussy wagon truck? Like what is she driving that thing around? For. Yeah. And then when she just rings the doorbell and, and Vernita opens it, there's no dialogue. They just get right to business yeah. and right to fighting. So as an audience member, the first time you're watching this movie, we just watched the bride get shot in the head. And then now she's in a fight. And she's getting – they're both brutalizing each other. Like they're tearing each other apart. There's blood everywhere. There's glass everywhere. And it's such a fun sequence in the way – Tarantino always finds a way to weave in his humor. When the girl, when the daughter shows up with the school bus, and then they're just both like standing defensive stances, and the school bus is approaching, and they're just like, "Oh shit!" It's, <laughs> it's that comedy that only Tarantino can pull off. She's like, "You know your dog? He, he ran a, a mess in here. Did all this? <laughs> he ran a damn. He was a damn fool. Fluffy did all this." <laughs> well, what's really cool is the um, Tarantino actually foreshadowed the gun being hidden inside of the cereal box because the cereal, it, the brand is called Bang. Oh, no way. Yeah. I never noticed that. And so the cereal box is called Bang, and that's where she has the gun hidden. And also, I don't know if it means anything, but in the kitchen, there's a painting of what looks like just handprints with blood, made with blood, just very yeah. red. I don't know if that if it's, it's just – like, It's got to be a reference to what's going to happen. If it's there, it's there for a reason. But what's so cool about this is it establishes 
the combat of the film, this scene. It's very important because we realize that everyone in this movie is going to be highly trained and they're all super assassins. And then also with the dialogue, Tarantino wisely tells us everything we need to know. We need From their conversation in the kitchen, we learn that Uma, uh, Beatrix, um, she was her, her daughter was killed, um, her husband was killed, and then we saw that she was almost killed. And so by saying that to Vernita, like that's the way I would get even Steven, then we know how much she lost in that opening setup. And then we also know that they both seem to be working as – they used to work as some kind of assassins or some something along that lines. We don't know quite yet, but based upon them having nicknames like that as, and combining that with their efficiency at fighting and how highly trained they seem to be, we can infer that they definitely both were some kind of highly trained martial artists. Yeah, and there's just so many great examples of Tarantino making such astounding characters. For example, when the sheriff soon is, is driving to the chapel – he doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to show the, sh the sheriff who has just one scene. He doesn't have to show how much character this person has by showing them driving and just their 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 glare while they're driving and the, the six different colored and shades of, of sunglasses on the dash kit. Just like tells us so much about this person, which which no other filmmaker really would do. But I love how Tarantino does things like that. You know that actor, Michael Parks, he plays the, the Spanish pimp in the second one. Oh, my God, dude, you're right. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He, they just put a little makeup and he had the beard and he did the accent. Holy crap. Same actor. So the sheriff dude. and the pimp, I can't remember his name, Esteban. Esteban. So the sheriff and Esteban are played by the same actor, Michael Parks. Wow, dude. What happened was he, Michael Parks got that sheriff role and they were doing a big table read and the actor that Tarantino had cast for Esteban wasn't able to go to the table reading. So Michael Parks filled in for that role because his character is not in the second one. So he's like, okay, I'll just read it. And Tarantino – and he, I think he performed it with a Spanish accent. And Tarantino loved the performance so much. He's like, "Okay, you're gonna play Esteban now. For, screw the other guy." Wow! I didn't, now that I think about it, they look you, exactly okay, like. You could, yeah, you're gonna watch the Esteban scene again. You'll be like, "Oh my god, that totally I is him." I've never picked up on that. Yeah, they just gave him like a goatee and probably dyed it and just disguised it. Made him look old. Yeah, made him look a little older. Wow. But yeah, same actor. Little tricks. You're welcome. That's my nugget of information. Now, as great as that opening fight sequence is, and it kind of sets the stage for what's to come. This obviously the. The series has so many fights. What do you think is the best fight out of all of them? The best fight in terms of, in terms of what, like, just like your favorite. It's hard to pick because the Crazy Eighty Eight fight is probably the most incredible action sequence I've ever seen in my life. And you know, Beatrix is fighting not eighty eight people, but she, you know, she goes from fighting like five dudes and, and then she fights Go Go and then she fights like thirty people at once, all with swords. So it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. But I think my favorite scene in the whole entire movie, I think, is when she fights Oren Ishii. I think that scene is just so incredible. And it's there's not a ton of fighting in it or swordplay of the five minutes or the four minutes and 59 seconds of that scene length. They only fight for like a minute maybe, if that. It's suspense. But the that, whole the whole scene is amazing to me. And I love when she steps down with her feet and then it just does the clap. Yeah. Great, yeah, great soundtrack. That's, yeah, that's my favorite scene. And I like how he uses like different songs in each fight. Like in that Oren fight, there's like three different songs that oh, play. Oh, more than that. And then the, different it, genres. That's yeah. what's so cool about and it. And in the Crazy 88 fight, there's several songs that play. Mm -hmm. And kind of like he edits, and she edits to whatever song it is. And the the, the filmmaking kind of changes to fit it. And it, the, it is hard to pick a favorite fight because I love, I really love the fight with Elle in the trailer. That's an epic fight, especially when she plucks her eye out. Mm -hmm. And the Vernita Green fight is really good as well. Uh, it's just, it's, but also her when she fights um, Pai Mei. Yeah, the Pai Mei fight's fun too. Definitely. And that one's 
really where he's going super retro with the filmmaking. Yeah. That one's a lot of fun. He's doing the zoom outs. And I think they shot that whole sequence in 16 mil, yeah. it looked like. But I think the just the scene of the Crazy 88 sequence, I think, is maybe the best part of the entire film because Tarantino, I think in Kill Bill Volume 1, has the most underrated long take in film history. You know, everyone oh, yeah. thinks of long takes. They think of, like, Scorsese and Goodfellas, and they think of Birdman and Fuck Scorsese. <laughs> Like, fucking loser. But when Beatrix arrives at that big restaurant where Oren and her gang go to, he does like a, a minute and a half shot in which it's such a great shot because there's so many moving parts in this large building in this restaurant and there's the band playing the, the they're playing the, the I think they're called the Woohoo's. Five, six, seven, eights. Oh yeah, the five, six, seven, eights and they play like the the, the 80s surfer rock covers. Yeah, that, from did, the he, Carnival Cruises commercials. He actually discovered them while he was uh, location scouting in Japan, and they, it was playing in a store. He's like, I need to find out who this band is. No way. Yeah, so that's how he found the the five six seven eights or seven. Yeah, yeah, five six seven eights. And, and so, we have mentioned before, Tarantino writes to music, certain songs. So he yeah. definitely. So then, um, but the camera, what it does is it, it just starts moving around the restaurant, and it follows different characters on their journey. And he does like the overhead shots. Then he follows Beatrix into the bathroom, and then we see like the the wall changes, so we can see like her silhouette changing, and then it, and, and we can see through the wall, and she puts on her her Bruce Lee jacket. But it's like a minute and a half going through the different hallways and rooms. It reminds me uh, very much of the shot from Minority Report when the little spider robots are going through that apartment, mm -hmm. and Spielberg goes over the ceilings and then into each apartment. Yeah, as you're right. Scanned. You're, you're right. Yeah. But I don't think either of them copied each other because I believe both these movies came out in 04. Maybe. So I don't think anyone copied the other. I think they just both, they're both like genius blockers and it's filmmakers. Just, I think it's just an underrated long tape because everyone else thinks of like Goodfellas and, and Revenant and Birdman and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. I think it deserves recognition because it's it's brilliant filmmaking. And the Crazy 88 scene is so fun because Oren Ishii is such a fascinating, badass character. You know, she, we have this great sequence of her of learning about her past and her origins in the anime short basically in the oh movie, yeah which is so fun because i remember watching this in theaters when we were like 13 i'm like whoa what is going on we watched it with dad i was like whoa and it's just so cool to see like people don't do that in their movies and but tarantino like we said does what he wants apparently what i read is that he there was a indian film yeah bollywood film yeah bollywood film that did that and he saw it and used that as inspiration yeah so where they made an animated short within the film yeah, and so we, I love learning about Oren Ishii's story and how she gets revenge on Boss Matsumoto. Yo, that's a movie in its own. It really is. Yeah. I want to see all, I want to see everything about Oren. I would love to see like a prequel of Oren Ishii. Mm -hmm. That'd be Oren really Ishii cool. Origins. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't watch this, then we're going to unsubscribe. <laughs> Unsubscribed. <laughs> but, but it's so great because we learned so much about Oren and what fuels her and how she went from being this young, innocent young girl to just a savage killer who would do anything to get revenge just like Beatrix. And that anime, it's so bloody. And I think Tarantino... Just like the crazy 80s. Yeah, fight. just like that. And also when she beheads the other mob boss, um, the, what he does with the blood in this movie is ridiculous. And it's all for fun. You know, he does this... Because he, I think he thinks that he gets a kick out of it when someone gets a limb chopped off. It just sprays blood, or if they're they get it's like a, a water fountain exploding blood out of their body. And obviously, it's not realistic. But when you watch in this movie, you accept it in this world that he's created, where things it's just doesn't. Not everything is super. It doesn't feel like reality. And sometimes, yeah, he based that off 
an old samurai film. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called like Sanjuro or something like that, uh-huh. where someone gets cut like in their torso and just like the director just had eruption of blood coming out of their <laughs> chest. So I, he grabbed that. It's like a very old samurai yeah. film, black and white. But that's just like the same thing with the violence thing, where it's like some a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, San, Sanjuro. A lot of people don't oh, want to. Oh, Sorry. Oh, nice. A lot of people don't want. Oh, some director. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say some director. I said the director. Some bum director. <laughs> some loser. <laughs> but um. A lot, of, like a lot of people, don't want to see bloody stuff, and they don't want to see that. But people like us were fans of it. When we see it happen, it's so crazy. It's, wild. it's awesome. It's it's so much fun because the vibrancy is one of the great strengths of this film. It's so colorful because when you watch Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and Reservoir Dogs, like the tones are very dark and like it's, they're not very colorful. Really, they're kind of like desaturated. Still beautiful films, but like when you watch Beatrix in her Bruce Lee jumpsuit tracksuit fighting all these crazy 88 gang members, blood flying everywhere, colors everywhere. It's just so fascinating. It's like the extravagance of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just the oversaturation and the just like over-the-top violence is what's so much fun. And then she just stands out in this pool of redness all around her. Yeah. And just the crazy 88 fight in general is just... Incredible action. Yeah. I love I love when the old lady at the end, she's like slipping on the blood. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, ah! ah! <laughs> It's so funny. <laughs> but it's it's the crazy eighty fight in itself is a movie. Like he's telling a story with that as well. And it's it's really cool because with the music and the blocking and what's happening in the fight, there's so many like different genres of a movie. And like there's like the fun action sequence with the like punk rock and like the drums and, and guitar. And then it's like a horror element where where it's like the music that he also used in Inglorious Bastards. It's very tense and dark where she has the Oh the yeah, sword through the guy. The, the, dun, dun. Yeah, and he's dun, using her as a yeah, shield. Yeah, and then just like she's like break dancing. It's just up and down of emotions in a roller coaster of genres. So much. I love this. I love the shot when she gets to the last person left, and it's just the little kid, and she starts. She spanks him. So <laughs> funny. Go home to your mother. <laughs> but I love that set that they built for the Oren fight. It's really beautiful, and it looks like they just shot shot on a on a sound stage with a a painted matte backdrop. But I really I love that. I think that's my favorite environment of the entire series it's, it's my favorite scene in general yeah. and but I, I my favorite scene might be her breaking out of the grave that's pretty epic and because well because in going into Pyme's memory well not all that but after you learn all that and then so I, I my I think my favorite part of all of it is um after she recounts the memory and she's she then she starts to amp herself up so she takes off the boots and then she grabs the the little switchblade and she starts on doing the rope with the gunslinger yeah. western music yeah, playing with that music playing and it just slowly builds and builds and gets faster and louder and then when she starts punching through the coffin i always get goosebumps that she's like breaking through it and the music is just compounding and that's it, gonna be so Marconi, right it's it could be yeah it i'm sounds not sure like an exactly. Marconi song but it's it's it might be my favorite sequence of the whole with film. the trumpet like, yeah. yeah it's just like i'm just like let's go beatrix get out of there it's pretty badass i love it uh, and but, that, the, whole, the whole sequence is terrifying yeah but just go back to oren ishii fight with her and it's it's a culmination of Oren and her arrogance and which is her biggest weakness and so Oren's a great character because she rises to the underground to to run the underground gangs in Japan. She's like the new head boss. And she's only part Japanese, part Chinese, and she's American, which is like unheard of for that. But because of fear and her power and her abilities, she's rise to the ranks in the in the Tokyo underground. She's like Voldemort. 
<laughs> kind of. <laughs> and um, it, it's epic the way she enforces her rule among the other bosses when she cuts the other guy's head off. And she, she has that great line where she's like, the price you pay for bringing up my either my Chinese or American her- heritage as a negative is I collect your f***ing head. That's great. It's just so badass. She's holding the head just staring into the camera. Lucy Liu's best performance. It, it is. And Oren is probably... You would. She's almost as good a fighter as Beatrix, but they could be the same skill wise. But I think it's Beatrix's drive and her need for vengeance, which is what makes lets her is lets her able to beat Oren. And Oren's underestimation of her as of, well, of course. Yes, yeah. she said, "You won't last five minutes. You'll be lucky if you last five minutes." And ironically, once she says that line, uh, "You won't last more than five minutes," that entire sequence for the rest of that scene, from when they she says that line to Oren's death. Is literally literally four minutes and fifty nine seconds. So Tarantino made it so that it was edited edited to be not even five minutes and that Oren last. And th- the irony is that Oren believing that she is a real samurai warrior and Beatrix is just a silly Caucasian girl who likes to play with samurai swords. That was her biggest hubris because that's what allowed her Beatrix to get that lethal blow on her leg, which really wounded her. Yeah, and she you know ridicules her mul- multiple times. But she does apologize to Beatrix once she lays that blow on her, and she really starts to realize that I. You can see it in Oren's eyes, like I might actually die right now. I yeah. could die. There's respect too. Yeah, absolutely. Respect for Beatrix, and yeah. you know, just to watch Beatrix overcome the odds of the crazy eighty-eight gang and Oren Ishii is just and Gogo and Gogo. You think yeah. that it's all? It's like she, what else could she do? That that scene with Gogo, the flashback where she stabs the guy in the bar. That's brutal. Oh my god! And then the blood just pours down like a waterfall. Oh my god! Gogo's Gogo's pretty ruthless. She's man. she's pretty nuts, man. Um, why don't we uh take a second? And speaking of samurai swords. Let's talk about something else that can cut just about anything. It's time that you head on over to manscaped.com and get your hands on the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. This brand new groomer is waterproof, skin safe, has a 7,000 RPM motor, which is amazing. It's a wireless charger, the built-in light so you can see everything down there. It's it's the best, fellas. You got to get on manscaped.com. Everyone listening, if you don't know what to get, the man in your life a gift for their birthday, just like a, a hint gift, like, hey, hon, I think you need to take care of some stuff. <laughs> Trust Manscaped. Two million men worldwide are using their products right now. I recommend their Performance 4.0 package, which has the Lawnmower 4.0 groomers, as well as a bunch of other goodies. Again, use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping worldwide from manscaped.com. If I'm not mistaken, they use Hattori Hanzo steel in their blades. Yeah, yeah, definitely Hattori Hanzo steel. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta ask you a question, and don't, don't, don't like a, be afraid to offend anyone. All right, and just be, give me your honest answer. Well, that's kind of weird. Which which one do you like better, Kill Bill One or Kill Bill Two? Kill Bill One, same. Yeah, I think it's all around just a, a faster. Uh, more happens. Uh, I thought that was going to be a way worse question. Uh, I, I thought you might be like, I don't want to offend anyone by doing two. I, I love Kill Bill 1. Yeah. I, it's definitely a better movie. That's why I have a poster of it. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. It is Kill Bill 1. The th- in Kill Bill 2, also a really great movie. I would just say it is a little slower and less happens, you know, and the sequences are longer. Um, whereas the first film, very well paced, um, very, very much go, go, go. Um, and the story and plot seem to be a lot tighter. And all in all, I think it's more entertaining and more fun than the second one. Well, they really are very different movies. I mean, she goes through a lot of the combat in in her revenge path in the first one. And the crazy thing with with the second one is 
you're assuming we're going to get this crazy climactic ending like maybe she's going to show up to bill and he's going to have like 40 bodyguards <laughs> and ninjas everywhere and samurai swords everywhere and she's going to have to fight even more people than the crazy 88 sequence but it's just bill and her and bb in like 30 minutes of dialogue yeah and that's the that's the climax of the movie and they fight for 12 seconds i like that the fight is just bill and beatrix because I think Bill, I, he realized I owe her a fair fight. Yeah, I think absolutely. To that point, like she's killed everyone, she killed everyone who's in the Delhi Viper squad as well as all of their henchmen, and so this woman, she made it this far, so I'll give her a fair fight with just me and her. It's like what Bud said. Yeah, that woman deserves her vengeance, and we deserve to die. Yeah, exactly. And similar to when Elle in the first film, the first time we we meet her, and she's. We have the iconic whistling sequence in the hospital where she's putting on the nurse's gown. And I love the creative filmmaking that Tarantino does here with the split camera shots with mm. her sleep with uh, Beatrix Comatose and Elle preparing the poison. It's Brian De Palma reference. And right before she's going to apply and inje- in- inject the poison to Beatrix during her coma, she gets the call from Bill. And this is where Bill, he's having that philosophical. Right on time. Yeah, that philosophical realization that. We're not going to succumb to being to, – to giving up our – Cowards. Power, our our yeah. what? Being cowards. Yeah, being cowards and giving up our dignity if they even have any since they're assassins. And we're not going to stoop that low. We're not going to sneak into her bedroom while she's asleep like a rat and kill her in her sleep. What's really cool is that Tarantino actually wrote Bill on the page. He's actually a master chemist, and they, I think he didn't have time to fit it into the movies, but – just how he made the truth serum in the second film, he also concocted that poison that L was going to inject inside of uh, Beatrix. Yeah. So he actually uh, makes his own chemical compounds on his own, which is really cool yeah. character trait. I think he's just realizing at this point, like I put a bullet in this woman's head. She deserves a shot at if she's still back, getting back and coming after me if she ever wakes up. And you know, Beatrix actually earns the respect of all of them. She earns Oren's respect. I wouldn't say Vernita Green, maybe. Probably. Probably not. But um, Elle, even though she despises Beatrix, she has that line to Bud where she says that she's filled with regret that the greatest warrior she's ever known was killed by a scrub like him. So she, even though she hates Beatrix, she's mad that she died at the hands of Bud. And then obviously she earns um, Bud's respect when he says that line to Bill saying that she deserves her revenge. And then Bill— I don't think Bud ever respects her, though, because Bud oh, yeah, yeah. buries her yeah. alive, yeah. bro. Well, he that's part of the deal with Elle. Well, I guess you could say the respect that she gets from Bud is him saying that whatever happens, happens. I'll be here. If she wants to start a fight, we'll fight. That's kind of being respectful, I guess. Yeah. You could say that I'll make it a I'll, – I'll let her come and give, give a shot. Yeah, and I love Michael Madsen in this movie, and Bud's a great character. And it's uh, it, the way he, they, he starts the first act of that of Kill Bill 2 following Bud's day in the life. Yeah. Really didn't see that coming. But great character study. The thing with Michael Madsen is he can be really good, but it depends on what the movie and character is because – I don't think anyone's ever been able to capture Michael Madsen as well as Tarantino has. He doesn't really fit in any other movies he's been in. He's all right in those species movies. He's, yeah, he's okay, but, but he wasn't like he's not like a leading man. Yeah, but with but Tarantino seems to have the an, a real grasp of who he is as a person, and I think he writes roles specifically for Michael Madsen to act as Michael Madsen in them. Yeah, you know Ma- what I mean. Madsen is like this has this quality that you it, I don't think you can really replicate it. It's like He's like this wild card, and behind his eyes, there's like a dog that's waiting to come out and like bite somebody. But like he keeps it reserved and held down. But he doesn't work. He, 
he doesn't do many good movies at all. He's he just does like Tarantino movies. Yeah, Tarantino <laughs> movies and a bunch of like movies nobody's ever seen. But even in the Hateful Eight, he does a really good job in the Hateful Eight. It's like this like like you said a wild card an ace up his sleeve that Tarantino knows he can use and writes as a strength towards Michael Madsen's natural personality because Michael Madsen's basically the the same performance over and over again. Yeah, not in a bad way, but I think Tarantino utilizes him in a really strong way that no one else can. And he's a very interesting character because he's someone who was part of this assassination squad, and we can assume that in his past he was also a very highly trained killer, probably martial arts-wise, and he was clearly clearly a a samurai sword fighter as well because he, because Bud, you know, gave him that Hattori Hanzo sword, which he lies about saying he hawked. So it's, it's really interesting to hear Bud say that he sold his Hattori Hanzo sword which he didn't. It was inside that golf bag. And what's what's so interesting about that is he he makes the offer to L once he gets Beatrix's sword. So he but he had Bud's sword, like you said, all along, and he's living this miserable life as a bouncer at a strip club that no one goes to. He lives in a trailer in the middle of the desert. He has nothing to his name, and all he needs to do is sell this sword, and he can be a millionaire. But he won't sell the sword Bud gave him. So it's a really great character trait. I think it's for him, it's a reminder of what he was, what he once was when he was in his prime and who was like a great killer. And to him, that was the glory days. And they don't they don't touch on Tarantino's just it's great it's great writing. You don't tell everybody everything. We don't understand the falling out that him and Bill had, why they're still why he's still upset at Bill. There's actually something similar in terms of Atori Hanzo's backstory. Mm-hmm. From what I read, apparently Bill and Hattori Hanzo were close back when Bill was younger. He was a student. Yeah, he was a student. And um, when Bill began his own quest as um, carrying out assassins and he made his his own crew of guys and gals to carry out assassinations, he uh, ordered a, a bunch of swords from Hattori Hanzo, but he told Hattori Hanzo the swords would not be used for violence or causing death. They would just be used for as like collector's gifts. items and gifts for friends of his. And then Hattori Hanzo made these swords, but they ended up going to the Deadly Viper Squad. And then when Hattori Hanzo found out that happened, that's what made him quit making swords because he discovered that the swords he crafted were used to kill countless people. And so that's why Bill carries such weight towards Hattori Hanzo for Beatrix to just say his name and he'll come out of retirement to make a sword. And Hattori Hanzo, just another great, great character. And so fun when Beatrix goes to Japan and she goes to Hattori Hanzo and he's making sushi. And it's very funny because him and his assistant have that back and forth bantering. Yeah. He's like, oh, if you're the general, I will be the emperor and you'll still get the sucky. <laughs> <laughs> and then we learn that he makes these swords and Beatrix wants one. She, she didn't say, can you make me one? She said, I I, tell, I told you to make me one. And then we have I said, give me, give me, give me a sword. Yeah. We have the beautiful sequence of him. You know, giving. Oh, sorry. Before that, I love the scene when um, he brings Beatrix up to the attic where all the swords are. And I think this is like the the sweetest moment of all of Tarantino's films. Like his like sweetest moment of a scene where Beatrix is examining all these amazing swords, and there's that really nice song playing. And it's very like a really terrific, touching moment of the movie. And I think it's really pulls you into Beatrix's character because of how much passion you see on her face. And how she's reacting, like she's afraid to even touch one of the swords. You can see how much respect she has for it. It's like a kid in a candy it's store. It's a really great scene. Yeah, because she adores samurai swords. Like even when you know she goes to see Paimei for training, she tells him that she's proficient in the exquisite art of samurai of of sword fighting. Oh. 
It, <laughs> <laughs> exquisite art. <laughs> so she's obsessed with sword fighting. But ironically, you could probably say that sword fighting isn't even her biggest strength. Her biggest strength is probably her hands. Yeah. Her hand that, that Jaime shapes into an ultimate weapon of death. And she's Annie Oakley with a pistol. Basically, yeah. <laughs> so she's the deadliest person, woman on the planet, probably deadliest person on the planet. Yeah, probably deadliest person. Because she kills literally everybody in the movie. <laughs> so you could say she that— She kills all the other deadliest people But that's what, that's what I love about the, the, end, the climax fight at the end is she doesn't use the sword to kill Bill. She uses the five-point exploding heart technique, and her hands are her deadliest weapon, which she shows when she escapes the grave. And also, just how I said that she earned the respect of all the characters, I forgot to mention Paime. She, she, she earned Paime's respect because she's the only person he, he ever taught the five-point palm exploding heart technique. Which shows you that he, she was his best student or his favorite student of all time. Yeah, as well. Because it, it's one of those things that, like, he's got to leave it to somebody. It's, it's a generational thing. Like, someone's going to carry on that tradition. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it's time to move on to our intermission. Oh, yeah, I forgot about intermission. We've been rolling. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've been rolling through these this bodies. such a great movie. All right, let's start off with our... Movie quote competition, I have two, one for me and one from a fan. I'll start with mine. Let's hear it. A building is a symbol, as is the act of destroying it. Symbols are given power by people. Alone, a symbol is meaningless. But with enough people, blowing up a building can change the world. I know it. Do you know it? Yeah. Why? Well, I came up with it. Oh, it's yours. Yeah, so that was, that's a V for Vendetta. Yes, sir. Yes. V and Evie on the rooftop. And then from Griffin Hatcher, this is Agent Sadusky. So here are your options. Door number one, you go to prison for a very long time. Door number two, we're going to get back the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> you help us find it, and you still go to prison for a very long time. But you'll feel better inside. <laughs> Harvey Keitel and National Treasure. Yes, sir. <laughs> it's pretty obvious, but that's yeah. a good one. <laughs> I love that. All right, here's my quote. Greed for back of a letter word. Uh, sorry. Greed for back. Oh, my God. Hold Come on. on. Take it. Breathe. <laughs> Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Is that how they say it in the movie? Yeah. Greed, for lack of a better word, is, is good. good. You're going to kick yourself. Not Wolf of Wall Street. No. No, that's dumb. Yeah, that is dumb. I don't know. Wall Street. Oh, I knew I, I, figured, I knew it was a Wall Street. I should have just said Wall Street. I looked away so you couldn't see In my head, like, I was like, is it Wall Street? No. <laughs> Damn it. Gordon Gecko. Yeah. Fucking bonus. It's funny. It's the first thing that popped in my head, too. Why didn't you say it? Because I didn't think that you... you lack confidence. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on to our guest movie release here. What year did Lucky Number Slevin come out? Ooh, shit. You know what's so funny is I did a heart in it one too. <laughs> oh no, so no, you, no, you didn't. Did, yeah. That's so weird. Um, lucky number eleven was two thousand and eight, two thousand six. Ah, I did thirty days of night. <laughs> thirty days of night. Hmm, that's a cool movie. That's so weird. We both did Josh Hartnett movies. That's like when we both did, did Devil's Advocate. Movie. Yeah, it's called Being Twins. Everybody, I did, I picked this because of Lucy Liu. Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, thirty days of night, which is that's such a cool vampire movie. That's good. Yeah, it's very um, good. I'm gonna say. 2007. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Got Good it. job. All right. Movie pop quiz time. In the film Catch Me If You Can, what is the first profession that Frank cons himself as? Hold on. Let me think. Shit. The first one. Hmm. 
A teacher. Yes. Yes. It's, a, it's like a trick question. Yes. He's a substitute teacher. He's the, the French yeah. teacher. Yeah. I was like, I was thinking like, there's, it's just a trick question. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's too easy. <laughs> I've seen that movie too many times. I got it. Okay. Here's mine. My, it's a little, a little hard. See if you can get it. Ben Foster, his big breakout role was in what Bruce Willis movie? Bruce Willis movie? Yeah. I don't know. Hostage. Oh. He's the guy with the he's the kid with the long black hair. Oh man. The psycho oh, one. Yeah, you're the psycho right. one. Yeah. Oh, and like he he lights the yeah. fire at the end. Yeah. Oh, I That's forgot about that movie. Yeah. Damn. I haven't seen that in a while. It's yeah. a pretty good movie. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. We were kids when we saw it. It's we, a nice house. It. Yeah. It's a dope. He's house. a maniac in that movie. Yeah. Out of his mind. That's I think that's how we got three ton of Yuma Probably. from that movie. Yeah, he's the best. He's the best actor in that movie. Oh yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to biggest supporters of the week. We have two. We have two great reviews. First one's from Elizabeth Nanaho. A must listen. This is the perfect eye clean driving between meetings podcast. I find myself searching through their episodes for the movie I just watched. They are a perfect balance of banter and facts slash movie analysis. Aw, thanks. thanks, Elizabeth. And then Gen G one two three four five five five. Love this podcast. You guys are amazing. You can tell how much y'all actually love film from the concept of a movie to screen, a true critique of movies. Overall, just an amazing listen, fun, and so educational. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Do we have a biggest hater of the week? So the biggest hater this week is Jason Vowles, 1628. I posted a clip about Hannibal, the TV show, with Mads Mikkelsen's. uh, He actually did all the cooking in the show, including the egg trick, which is you take a... a flat spatula, and you throw the egg up in the air, and then you let the egg drop onto the spatula, and it cuts it in half on the edge. Yeah, and then um, Jason Vowles wrote, "Weak. Anyone can do that egg trick. It's such an overrated, easy trick. Anyone can do." Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. All right. On this day in film history, today is July twenty sixth. Stanley Kubrick was born in nineteen twenty eight. It's also Helen Mirren's birthday. Sandra Bullock's birthday, Jason Statham's birthday, and in 1997, director James Cameron married Linda Hamilton. Oh, nice. I think that lasted two years. Yeah, he's been married a bunch. And then movies, yeah, he's had like five marriages. Insane. It's probably hard to talk to on a daily basis. (laughs) And then um, movies released on this date in history, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 2019, Little Miss Sunshine in 2006, and Fruitvale Station in 2013. And then I have a, a top comment. It was my favorite comment of the week where I posted a clip about Tom Hardy for Bronson, the movie. And Charles Bronson mailed him his actual mustache thinking he could use it for wearing it in the movie. So creepy. And then um, Blythe in it uh, wrote, did you also know that they didn't hire Vin Diesel because they didn't want the movie to be about family? <laughs> Someone say family. <laughs> but it's family. Family. My streaming recommendation is on Amazon, and it is The Wrestler. Ooh, nice one. Incredible, incredible movie. Mickey Rourke gives his career best performance. Sensational. Nice. Excellent. And you got one? or No, I don't have... My computer broke. You're so so unprepared. His computer did broke. What you see on the screen right now is a dead computer. (laughs) It's totally... He's got his iPhone on top of it. It won't turn on. Let's get back into Kill Bill. And so I think we were talking about Bud and Bill. And Bud's a great character, too, because Tarantino... He effectively 
builds empathy for this character because we realize like this guy's life is terrible. You know, yeah. he's living in this trailer in the middle of the desert. He works at a strip club where he is getting his schedule removed. So he basically is almost getting like half fired while he's there. And he's also the janitor. Yeah, he clearly hates his job, doesn't like his life. And then Tarantino throws that all away and we end up despising him more than we could believe because not only does he shoot up Beatrix with rock salt, technically, I mean, he's defending himself, but he still is a murdering psychopath who deserved it, he buries her alive. Like, of all the things you could do to kill somebody, he buries her alive. It's insane. And the the grave he buries her at, it's the tombstone says Paula Schultz. And a lot of people believe that this is actually King Schultz's wife from Django. Uh, from Django. And so that's where his wife was buried, and that's where Beatrix is buried. Would he? Would he, they have been that age? Yeah. Well, I mean, the grave... It's like, the, it's like his grandmother. Or, no, it's like his granddaughter. Yeah. Because that was the 1800s. Yeah. But, Maybe. I mean, they say the date. I don't know. It could be is. an old tombstone. could be an old tombstone. I mean, you know, not all tombstones are 50 years old. You're right, man. I don't There's... know why I was taking that attack against you. You're so right. You, you, I should not have been like that. That was really rude of me. You're right. It could be an old tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> what was that movie we watched the other day and someone went to, a, oh, it was Black Widow. I'll just say the post credit scene, the... Um, Natasha's tombstone is like covered in moss and looks like it's 50 years old and it's only been there for like a month yeah for our father sells tombstones for a living so like we like tombstones don't get that old yeah. looking that fast yeah we know tombstones real well anyways <laughs> back to the movie Kill Bill and Kill Bill 2 what were we just talking about we were talking about Bud buried alive alright yeah. so the, and then the sequence of her being buried alive is terrifying you know I think the way that Tarantino shot it was so clever because he puts you inside the coffin with Beatrix, Beatrix obviously, but then the hammering of the nails and each it's the bit, sounds, each bit of yeah. light going out with the sounds, and then tossing the coffin into the grave and hearing that loud thump, and then he gives you like a few seconds of just blackness, and we just hear nothing but Beatrix breathing, and then all the the piles of sand coming crashing down. It sounds like an ocean. It's really terrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying. Here in the sound, the sound department did a fantastic job with the sequence because it sounds so scary. And obviously, because she's inside the box, the sound of the of the what's in the box? What's in the box. <laughs> the sound of the dirt falling onto the box sounds so loud and terrifying, and it's one of my favorite sequences of the movie. And it really is probably the scariest thing he's ever done yeah. in terms of like if you watch this in the theater and it's all pitch black and all you hear is the loud sound of dirt thumping on top of your grave is just horrifying. Yeah, but then what's great is he transitions to Beatrix shutting the flashlight off and then we go to her past years and years before we ever before any well, first of the, it was black and white well yeah so well. super yeah. cool but it goes back to before any time that we've been with beatrix at all this is before when she knows bill before he did the act that he did and they're at that campfire and he's telling the story of Pyme with the the flute that he's playing and then we go into her training with Pyme, which is so epic yeah Pyme is such a fun character and he's obviously a reference to uh, similar characters from lots of those films back made back in the 60s and 70s. Wasn't there a character actually named yeah, Pyme? Yeah, and he actually looks exactly the same. I think that, you know, Tarantino is just like showing his love of that kind of cinema and that character. And like, I'm going to put that character in my movie. Why not? Who gives a fuck? <laughs> it works. And it's a fun sequence. And I love when he he's just like constantly taunting her. And she looks like she's very a great adept fighter, but she's, he says that, she says, 
all the skills that she knows. And he says, so you know nothing. <laughs> He's like, I asked you to show me what you knew, and you did absolutely nothing. <laughs> but Paime is such a legend because of what the story that Bill tells of Paime is that he was insulted by a monk. That, what, the monk, like, tripped over him or, or something. So Paime passing him um, gave him the slightest nod that was almost indiscernible. And the monk failed to respond to it. Yeah, and so Paime's response was to go to all the monks in their sanctuary and murder them all yeah. with his bare hands. His crew murdered them all. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Paime's crew. Which like, is insane. Eagle something, yeah. And so Paime is— And also it means that Paime is over a 1,000 years old. Pretty old guy. Yeah. So he's just an, an incredible master martial artist. And the things that he does to Beatrix without her even landing a blow with the sword is incredible. And she already, like you said, she seems like an adept fighter. And even like jumping on the sword, and it's just amazing what he does. And, and like then, when, he, when he throws the sword and it falls perfectly back in the hole. Yeah. And like you said, he's constantly taunting her, which is what he does because he's trying to break her character down. This is very similar to like military training. You know, you break somebody down to shape them into the fighter that you want them to be, which is what he's doing. And in a lot of ways, he seems to have like superpower in terms of his abilities. You know what I mean? It's inhuman what he can do. And he even asks, like, is it your wish to possess this power? And clear, obviously, all the other members of the Viper Squad probably went through this training as well mm -hmm. in order to become as efficient as they are. And, and it's, it's like mythical power. Yeah, and, and one of the things he's doing is she tries to attack him with the rock in her hand, and then he's like, this arm belongs to me now. And so he wants it strong. And so she spends months and, and years just strengthening that hand by punching that wooden plank three inches away over and over again and I'll, the only that you you can say that like is that all she did but I, obviously tarantino didn't show all of the training and yeah she, over that time she probably did so much stuff but it's probably she, a couple of years he's just showing what relates to being trapped alive in that coffin and you watch their relationship progress and you can see how Paime begins to have respect for beatrix over and over again because she's overcoming these difficult tasks and he's eventually you can see becoming proud every time he does that like chin beard swipe it's like oh wow she accomplished something a proud especially when her hands she's she can't even move her hands they're shaking she's trying to eat the rice and she tries to use her bare hands but he tells her you can either sleep outside like a if you want to eat like a dog you can live and sleep outside like a dog or you can pick up those sticks and he watches her struggle but use the chopsticks to eat the rice and he seems to be does the beard swipe he's very proud of her not to mention he's got the most crazy eyebrows of all time oh those things are wild <laughs> but then we learn that beatrix uses this technique to escape the coffin and just punch her way through it and then climb her way out of the dirt which is insane i love he tarantino does a shot that's like a reference to um dawn of the dead when her hand sticks out of the air, out of the ground, it's like a zombie hand sticking out. Mm. I love it. It's a great shot. And then that it's so funny when she goes to that diner nearby and she's like, I'd like the bla a glass of water, please. <laughs> she's <laughs> covered in dirt. It's so funny. And then I think one of my favorite shots of the movie is after that when she goes back to Bud's trailer. And this is after Bud's called Ellen for, to come with a million dollars cash and get the Hattori Hanzo sword. And she's standing on that cliffside watching her pull up and we have like the epic music playing and then the sirens going and now she's gonna go get her revenge that and that scene with bud is great uh, i love how l recounts all the details she found on the internet about the black mamba it's super fun and then uh, this fight with l and beatrix it's one of the best in the entire series because it's so brutal and fast and being in closed quarters like that like l can't even pull her sword out of the out of its uh, sheath because they're so tight and I, they just really just throw each other. It's like reminds me of the fight in Terminator 
when they're just throwing each other into walls and mm-hmm. breaking through doors and walls, yeah. just like that. And then you know, Beatrix finds Bud's Hanzo sword. And to then the only to the only man I ever loved, your brother Bill. It's just a fascinating s- s- little character trait of Bud about lying about that sword. Apparently, what I read, apparently, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah hated each other and couldn't stand each other really? for some reason. And they they had it in their contracts with the producers that they could they had to be around each other as little as possible, and they both had at the premiere of the movies they had made sure that the event hosted different areas for them each to so that they were never had to see each other at the party, and they were always separate. Well, I'm sure Uma's you, was popping. Yeah, I'm sure it was. But you could see like that hate they have each for each other in yeah, the fight. Yeah, like, worked they out looked great really in the movie. well. Yeah. I don't know what I don't know what happened between them, but something happened. Yeah, but I love how you know they're in their sword duel, and then she asks L what she said to Paime that made him pull her eye out, and you know we finally get to learn why she is missing one of her eyes, and then L confesses that sadistically that she killed Paime and poisoned him, and then Uma, I mean Beatrix get, gets revenge and pulls out her other eye, which you could probably say, in her opinion, was was worse than killing L is oh, to yeah. pluck out her second eye. Oh, she's gonna die horribly. In if, the desert. If I mean, if she even if she does die, I don't see how she could get out of that desert without eyes and bleeding out of her eye socket and infection. And yeah, yeah you're she, probably right. She would die a horrible, painful death. Yeah. Plus, she's probably cut up from all the glass and everything. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't know where she's who's going to go there. Yeah, exactly. She's she's done for in that desert. Yeah, you're probably like, right. Like it is a horrible, agonizing death that she's that awaits her. Probably dehydration and starvation. Yeah. But when she pulls it out, that's the most shock. It's so shocking, so gross. And like, she no, steps how many, on it. no matter how many times you see it, you're like, "Oh my god!" You, you expect it, and yet it still surprises you. It gets me every time. Let's see, what else should we talk about? Esteban. 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 Well, actually, can you talk about the car crash when oh, she's driving yeah. this so, car? So there's there are two controversies surrounding the production of Kill Bill with. Tarantino and Uma Thurman. There were a couple articles like that got a lot of attention years ago about how um, Tarantino choked Uma Thurman on set and spat on her face. And I don't think what people under- don't understand is this was part of the scene. This was so in the go-go fight with- between Beatrix and Go-Go, the chain that's wrapped around Uma's neck, that's Tarantino holding the chain with the complete consent and permission of Uma Thurman. And then also, it, it's not like Tarantino was like walking around set just like spitting on Uma Thurman's face. This was the scene where before Bud buries Beatrix alive, Beatrix spits in, in Bud's face, and then Bud spits on on Beatrix's face with his nasty uh, tobacco lip dipping dip spit. Yeah. And Tarantino's the one that did the spit. I mean. We're both of I, I think we're both of the consensus that like we prefer like stunt people to do like the the stuff like the with the chain and everything like that, but Uma gave consent on both situations and she was totally for it. You know, no interview of hers ever said anything otherwise. So it's not like he was going around just like spinning on Uma Thurman on the set and stuff like that. And it's not the only time that's ever happened to actors. Uh, male actors deal with that a lot as well. And you know, like Chris Evans. Um, nearly tore he tore apart his arm and his chest pectoral from holding the helicopter and that helicopter scene um, that they they had him do that shot over and over and over again and he got seriously injured from that and it took him a while to recover from that and also uh, another one of the crazy stories is that and the girl in the dragon tattoo um, at the end when um, 
Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig is being is captured and he's being hung up. He's strung up and um, they he puts a paper ba- a plastic bag over his head. They did that for real and really taped it. And Daniel Craig had no no air to breathe for like a minute. And they did the take so many times that um, one time Daniel Craig passed out from lack of air. And you know it's just part of the line of work when you work with a director that is they know what they want and they're not happy until they get it right. It's and actors like that, like Uma Thurman, like Daniel Craig, they didn't complain. They're all for it because they are just as committed to their performance looking right just as much as the directors. So it's both parties are for it and they want to do it and they aren't being forced or coerced into doing something. Then I I'm, I agree. It's 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 okay by me. But there was one situation on yeah. Kill Bill Two where Quentin Tarantino absolutely put put Uma Thurman's life in danger, and Uma could have tech. She could have probably died filming one of the scenes in Kill Bill Two. It was a very unsafe situation. Tarantino didn't go through the correct protocols, stunt people, or, or planning to do this. It was the the scenes where Uma. And where Beatrix is driving to Bill and she's bombing to Esteban. To, uh, to Esteban. She's bombing that little car down those curvy streets in, in the forest. And Tarantino's yeah. just like, oh, it'll look great. Well, we're going to. He, he wanted her to keep going faster and faster. And she wasn't very comfortable with going too fast. And but, it's an old vintage car, yeah. hard to control as yeah. it is. And it, again, this, this should have been a stunt actor or a stunt driver and it should have been safer. And he was making her go too fast. And I think Uma probably felt that like. I have to do this for the movie, and he's never gonna. He's he's not gonna accept me not going at this rate of speed. So she did it, and she crashed horribly, and she hurt her neck, her leg, and I think she also hurt her back. And there's injuries that she's still dealing with. So that situation, Tarantino 100% put Uma Thurman's life in danger, which he shouldn't have done, and and he's admitted to it, and he's given her, he gave her the footage to release a few years ago. So kudos to him to for eventually, you know, admitting his wrong, but it still doesn't make up for the fact that he definitely put her life in danger. Yeah, and ultimately it's not worth it because it's only uh, uh, two seconds of footage on the film. And he did it because he wanted to have that look of her driving the car that fast. The wind blowing in her hair. The wind blowing, and it's it gets to the point where it's like it's not worth it. And it was just incredibly irresponsible and uh, almost unforgivable what he did. And it was very... Very bad judgment on his part. And I'd he, say it is unforgivable. He, yeah, he he was. To, I'm think she. I think she forgave him ultimately a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I think it was completely uh, irresponsible of him and just horrible, horrible judgment. Yeah, it's one of those things that you know they kept swept under the rug for a decade and a half. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to talk about her. They didn't want her to talk about. It, but she finally convinced. She asked if she could do it finally, and and he let him yeah. let her. Yeah. So that those are the instances of abuse reported on the set of these two films. Hundred percent. Yeah. Anyways, let's keep moving on to Esteban. Esteban. Which is a great character. And so Esteban was a father figure to Bill. And he's like... He's they, a pimp. Yeah, he talks about how like... Or she talks about like young boys who grow up without fathers, they tend to try to find father figures on their own. And, and Bill found him. And Esteban is a really fascinating character. He's not a good man, though. He's, he's, a, he's a pimp. And... He seems to be like he's horrible towards women. Like he says, like the, his way of punishing her rather than shooting in her in her head, he would have just cut up her face. And you know, I mean, this guy is a monster right here. Like, like in, the girl that he clearly cut up her face. Yeah, exactly. And like, obviously, we know where Bill gets it. You know what I mean? Like, Bill is not the son, but he was in a way raised by Esteban, and so that's obviously how Bill became such a violent killer on his own, for sure. Yeah, and so she learns the whereabouts of. Where's Bill? Where's, Where's Bill? Bill? 
Where's Bill? From Esteban. And like I said, we are expecting like a crazy epic action climax. Like there's going to be a huge fight. But before we get to it, Anthony has to tell us about MoviePosters.com. The number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. If you're checking out our set on YouTube, we hope you are. You will see that it is decked out with these amazing posters, high quality, pretty much every movie imaginable, all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting. MoviePosters.com has it. If you're a fan of film, if you're a fan of television, there's no better way to express that love of yours than by decorating your place with a ton of posters. And the best place to do that is MoviePosters.com. Again, use our promo code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. Great job, pal. Thanks, man. And so she gets to Bill, and she you know, is ready to fight. She's got her sword ready to go. What's so funny about these movies is she takes her sword everywhere. She takes it on yeah. a plane. She's yeah. walking through samurai this like, estate, yeah. like these, these hotels. But what's cool on the plane is other people have samurai swords Yeah, so on the this plane. universe is It just... seems like it's a normal thing to do. Yeah. And um, she's expecting to to fight. You know, she's going in gl- guns blazing. But then she finds that her daughter's alive, Bibi. Bibi. She, she survived the the bullet wound as well, and she probably gave birth to her while she was in a coma. They they probably extracted the baby from her. They extracted the baby. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been extracted. A severian, I'm sure. Doctor, we must extract this baby. <laughs> that's a weird. That's a very technical word to say. Technically, that's what they did. <laughs> yeah, Severian yeah. is is an extraction. Yeah, I understand. So yeah. they extra- it's a synonym. <laughs> they extracted BB <laughs> from Beatrix's uh, stomach <laughs> womb. This is the the best acting of the entire uh, franchise. Just uh, Uma Thurman's acting of surprise, shock, uh, tragedy. Uh, she's crying, and then also she plays into the game that BB's playing. It's really fantastic acting, and then she finally kind of gathers herself and manages to like spin around and whip around and be like, BB, you shouldn't have. And then it becomes very a very sweet moment, but fantastic acting. I should have known. I should have known. And David Carradine, he's been a mystery pretty much the whole time. He hasn't had a ton of screen time. Yeah, at the beginning of Kill Bill 2, yeah, but again, his voice was all we hear in the first one, and that was one of the most fascinating parts of Bill is who is Bill, what does he look like, and then we learn about him, and then we have this long sequence with him and Beatrix and BB. And on the surface, he seems like a good father in a way. You know, he's he's very nice, but also there are elements to it where you can tell parts of him are rubbing off onto BB, which is what Beatrix didn't want. Like the story he tells of BB stepping on her goldfish and killing it, I'm sure she's learning something like that from being around Bill so often. Yeah, I mean, kids don't normally step on fish. I've never been tempted to do that. And then he's just so fascinated by the story about, like, isn't that perfectly encapsulate life and death? Yeah. A fish flopping on the ground and a fish not flopping on the ground. And Beatrix is like, you're crazy, man. And she's watching Shogun Assassin, and she's like four years old. Yeah, so he's definitely not the the best influence on BB because the whole movie up until this last 30 minutes has been a revenge flick of Beatrix coming and, and getting revenge of the loss of her child and her loved ones. But now it's more of like a rescue movie where she's trying to rescue BB now that she knows BB's alive from the world that Bill is bringing her up in. You could even argue that as BB grew older, Bill probably would have began training her as a killer. Absolutely. I think that he probably would have set it out in his mind to turn her into the deadliest assassin alive. You can tell just the way he just flaunts that giant knife around like it's no big deal in front of a four-year-old's face like playing with it yeah and that's such great character attention to detail that he makes uh, a cold cut sandwich with a giant knife 
and that's how he slices the bread. You know what I mean? Cut those crusts that's off. The, oh, like, of course, Bill, that's how Bill cuts the bread. He's just waving, and BB's just like, oh, that's a cute knife. Yeah. Like, no big deal. I think he definitely would have turned BB into a killer for sure. 100%. But, and that's what, that's, and I mean, they never fully specify, but that's got to be why Beatrix got out of there because she knew that if her child was born in that world, she was going to be part of that world. Oh, 100 That's exactly yeah. why. You know, yeah. Beatrix, when she's on that last mission that she's on and she gets to the hotel and she said, you know, she tells a story about how, when she's talking to Bill with the truth serum, how she felt sick and she threw up on the plane and she's like, oh, maybe I'm pregnant. And then she finds out she is pregnant. And then that assassin tries to come to kill her and she, you know, convinces her to leave by showing her her pregnancy test. And she's talking about how at that point, before that moment, she would have jumped from a moving car onto a train for Bill. She would have done anything for him. She was 100% a cold-blooded killer assassin, would would kill anybody any day as long as she got paid and it was part of her mission. But at that point, even though she was the most deadliest person on the planet, could kill anybody, she's got she's better than Annie Oakley and she's got that woman in her sights. All she was was a scared mother, terrified for her baby. Once that strip turned blue. So now she's come from being a killer with no empathy to now... This one moment has brought humanity and empathy into Beatrix's kiddo's life. Yeah, this this whole sequence is all the best dialogue of of the entire series, and then some of De- Tarantino's best dialogue. And uh, we also have that great Superman monologue where he compares uh, Beatrix to Clark Kent, Superman, saying that Peter Parker wakes up as Peter Parker. He puts on the suit to become Spider-Man. Same thing with Batman. Batman wakes up as Bruce Wayne. He's Bruce Wayne. He puts on the suit to become Batman. But Superman wakes up as Superman. The clothes that he wears the, with the big red S, that's what he was brought in on a ship. That's his blanket, his clothing from his it's home his planet. Blankie. And so Beatrix Kiddo, she wakes up a killer as Beatrix Kiddo, Kiddo and then puts on the costume and suit of going to that record store mm. and living that fake life to try to blend into society. And he compares... Clark Kent as Superman's critique on humanity. Mm. It's fascinating. And I, I really love Bill's death because Tarantino foreshadowed it because Bill is the one who told the story about the five-point palm exploding heart technique. And so it's kind of, it's the same thing as the, the smoking gun where in a movie, if you see a gun, it's going to be used eventually. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's the same kind of concept where you tell a story about this crazy way to kill someone. It's going to happen sometime. And you didn't know when it was going to happen, but you knew some point in this film, she's going to use the five-point palm exploding heart technique yeah, on someone. And I just love how he doesn't do it with swords. It's like, yeah, they fight with the swords for a moment, but she doesn't kill him with the sword. Again, her deadliest weapons are her hands. Yes. And then she gets BB. She saves BB and rescues her because now it's a rescue mission and... She's won. She extracted BB. She extracted BB <laughs> from Bill. And we have the very emotional scene where she's crying, laughing in the hotel bathroom, and then she jumps on the bed with BB and they watch cartoons. And then it's a really sweet it's ending. Very sweet. It's a very sweet ending. It's touching. Yeah. Oh man, Beatrix Kiddo. She's the best man. It's the best. I actually around. made a list of, I think it's chronological order almost of all of Beatrix Kiddo's challenges in this in these films. You want to hear it? You love your list. So Let's hear it. These are Beatrix Kiddo's challenges in Kill Bill and Kill Bill. I 2. can make a list of your lists. <laughs> Making it through Pi Mace training, becoming an expert assassin and member of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, then all of the assassinations that she carries out, escaping her life of crime after becoming pregnant, surviving a bullet wound to the head, waking up from a coma after four years. De- escaping the hospital from the rapist, 
forcing her limbs out of entropy, tracking down and assassinating those who tried to kill her, convincing Hattori Hanzo to make her a sword, fighting Oren Ishii in the Crazy 88, fighting Vernita Green, escaping being buried alive by Bud, fighting fighting L Driver, and then tracking down and killing Bill. That's intense. It's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. One of those just seems like a like too much for me. It's like Harry Potter level conflict. No, that's, that's way more than Harry Potter, man. I don't know. He, he defeated the Dark Lord. Yep, dude. She killed, killed the Basilisk. Bro, she killed way more people with that sword than the, the the Basilisk. Yeah, but he beat the Dark Lord. I think I think Beatrix is more badass. Yeah, but the enemy Dark Lord is way more dangerous than Bill. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're just hot for Harry Potter. We, for just, we just fit it. We're almost done with our Harry yeah, Potter. You're just hot for it right now, yeah. man. Big time. <laughs> Want to do some trivia for Kill Bill? Um, yeah, let's do it. Quentin Tarantino originally intended to cast Japanese actress to play Oren Ishii, but before casting began, he saw Lucy Liu perform in Shanghai Noon and immediately changed Oren into a Chinese-Japanese-American so that Lucy Liu could play the part. She's awesome in Shanghai Noon. Yeah, I love that movie. Quentin Tarantino owns the pussy wagon and drove it every day to promote the release of Kill Bill Volume 2 in 2004. He licensed use of it for a Missy Elliott music video, I'm Really Hot, and also appears in the video for Telephone by Lady Gaga and Beyonce. For any eagle-eyed viewers of Kill Bill 2, you'll notice that it's actually Samuel L. Jackson who plays the organ player in the uh, church Tarantino purposely doesn't get a close-up shot of his face, but you can tell, and obviously he's the iconic voice, but that's Sam Jackson. Speaking of the chapel, we didn't even talk about the chapel. There's there's so much in these movies. It's it's one of my favorite scenes when we get to have that conversation between Bill and Beatrix, and, and it shows Bill's true side of how he, he's just lying right to Beatrix's face, and he can't deal with the fact that she doesn't want to be with him, and he responds in what he calls overreacting by killing everybody inside the chapel. <laughs> Just madness of <laughs> reaction. Uh, moving on. The black and white photography in the Crazy 88 fight scene is known as a homage to 70s and 80s U.S. television airings of kung fu movies. Black and white was used to conceal the shedding of blood from television sensors. Originally, no black and white photographic effects were being used were going to be used, but the MPAA demanded measures be taken to tone the scene down. Tarantino used the old trick for its intended purpose as well as an homage. And so I think it's like the first part of the of the crazy fight it's after he pl- she plucks out the eye things go black and white right for like it's about- when things get like she's cutting people in half yeah. and stuff like that so that's it's so really that they crazy. could keep it in the movie and not yeah. get a NC-17 exactly in Kill Bill when the movie is shown on network television the name of the truck Beatrix drives is edited to party wagon rather than pussy wagon so it's the <laughs> party wagon <laughs> Jack Nicholson, Kurt Russell, Mickey Rourke, and Burt Reynolds all passed on playing Bill. I think David Carradine just brought so much to it. He's like he's both like a cowboy, that vibe, but also he's known for kung fu in that old TV show. So he has both elements of the martial arts, kung fu, uh, samurai stuff, as well as like the western gunslinger stuff too. I couldn't picture anyone else as Bill. No way. Uh, all the scenes uh, depicting Tokyo at night. From the sky are actually miniature sets, especially that plane. Yeah, and the plane is in the plane as well. And uh, all the sets are actually leftover sets from um, the film Godzilla, Mothra, and King Godria. King Godra, giant monsters all out attack. That's the movie title. <laughs> it's epic. It's a mouthful. 
The name Hattori Hanzo was born by four ninjas in feudal Japan, but the most famous was born in the mid-16th century. As well as being an excellent strategist and a master of the spear, he and his ninja were instrumental in ushering the, the Tokugawa period of Japanese history from 1603 to 1868. Pretty fascinating. Hmm. Oh, yeah, here we go. As Quentin Tarantino was leaving Japan after initial location scouting and securing the studios, he heard the all-girl band, the 5678s, playing over the store's speakers where he was. He was so intrigued by the music that he asked a clerk who the band was. When he was told, Tarantino didn't have enough time to go to a music shop to get their CD, so he begged the clerk of the store to sell him their copy. Tarantino took, Tarantino took the disc home, listened to it, and immediately signed the band to play during the showdown at the House of Blue Leaves segment. And all of the band's songs, including the standout Woohoo, are covers of early 60s surfer songs. Very cool. Woohoo, woohoo, brown, 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 brown. Good job. We're going to get copyright for that. <laughs> In Reservoir Dogs, Michael Madsen's character attempts to kill a cop by dousing him with a can of gasoline, intending to burn him alive. In this movie, Kill Bill 2, the same gas canister can be seen in Bud's trailer as the bride attempts to enter. Hmm. Quentin Tarantino originally intended to have originally intended to have Paime's lips speaking Cantonese while his voice would be in English, imitating a bad dub job on purpose to kind of play off that trope. Tarantino was going to provide the voice himself. In the end, Tarantino abandoned this idea, and Paime, played by Chia Hue Lu, speaks in his own voice. and does. He's a terrific performance in this movie. Yeah. In an interview, Quentin Tarantino stated that there, would be, there could possibly be a Kill Bill 3, but it wouldn't happen for a while. He also discussed that a possibility for the story would center around Vernita Green's daughter, Nikki, who seeks vengeance upon the bride. anymore although bill is famously skilled and a prolific killer he is not actually shown killing anyone on screen and i think uh just one fact in general about the movies is tarantino considers these just one movie so he doesn't call kill bill to his fifth film whereas they're both just considered his fourth film makes him gives him the uh liberty to make a 10th one now. And it also gives him the liberty to retire if he wants and just say it's his fifth film and then yeah. he's done with 10 yeah if y'all haven't heard of that Joe Rogan episode, check it out. Him and Joe Rogan's really fantastic. Yeah, it's really great to hear him speak and yeah. telling fascinating stories. Yeah. That's all I got on Kill Bill 1 and 2. All right. I think we covered pretty much everything. I mean, we probably missed a few things, so sorry, but this was a lot to go over. And, you know, that don't, was a Don't ton apologize. That was a great job. That was a ton of fun to talk about. We love these movies, and they're they're really great. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to become a patron today. Stay tuned for episodes next week, and head on over to RaidersOfLostPodcast.com. Subscribe on YouTube. Hit the follow notification bell wherever you're listening. Leave those five-star reviews, and thank you so much for tuning in. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Find us on all audio platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere. Weekly episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, plus bonus reviews throughout the week. Find us on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, everywhere. Thank you so much for listening around the world. Feel free to watch one of these other videos right here.